Welcome to the Bowl Season Stories podcast, season two, episode five. I'm Nick Carparelli, the executive director of Bowl Season. And today we are joined by television personality, podcast host, a college football playoff ambassador, Rachel Lindsay, New England Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick, and the CEO of Florida Citrus Sports, Steve Hogan. Today's show is brought to you by Sport Radar, reimagining immersive experiences for sports fans and betters. This first guest, I, I honestly don't even know how to introduce her. She she does everything, it seems. She's an attorney, author, media personality, guest host, speaker, hosts a podcast. She's worked in multiple capacities for ESPN. She was a contestant on The Bachelor and the star of The Bachelorette, as well as something we'll talk a lot about today. She's an ambassador for the College Football Playoff Foundation and the Extra Yard for Teachers program. Please welcome to the show, Rachel Lindsay. Rachel, uh, did I miss anything? I mean, uh, oh, do, you have, do, you have any, do you have any free time? I mean, <laughs> I have free time right now, Nick. Free time right now. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. <laughs> well, first off, uh, you are a college football fan. Tell me, what do you think? What do you think of the season so far? I mean, we've had such great games. The ratings are off the charts. Any anything uh, in particular impress you or jump out at you in this? Uh, I think we're going into week four. I think I can't believe it's already week four. It always moves by too fast. I mean, I am a Texas Longhorns fan through and through. Got to put that out there. Hook them horns. So I'm obviously excited about my team and what they're doing. Sadly, we lost our quarterback, but we seem to be, you know, holding on strong there. Because I'm married to an SEC guy, I have to pay attention to Florida as well. <laughs> so I've been following them and what they're doing. He's not as excited as me right now uh, when it comes to football teams. But no, I think it's just been, I think we have great matchups. Starting with week one, there were so many great games upsets it's just been a really fun thing to watch and i'm really excited to see i feel like right now i don't know this is going to sound negative maybe teams were prematurely ranked because i think we're going to be surprised come bowl season as to who makes the playoffs i couldn't agree with you more rachel i love that you said that i i tend to think Oftentimes teams are prematurely ranked. You know, I've, I've been an advocate of why, why do we even have polls before the season starts? We should wait till halfway through the season to, to do it. Cause you don't know who's good. I mean, so many kids are coming and going and recruiting. And uh, I think we saw that early on, especially with some of the lesser known brands with <clears throat> app state and Georgia Southern and Marshall having right. big wins. I mean, those were fun to watch. Exactly. Now, unless my team is ranked, then it's okay. But oh, other than that, well, your team's probably <laughs> uh, your team's probably underranked all the time in your. In your <laughs> I'd rather that. <laughs> well, Rachel, catch us up a little bit. I, I I was joking earlier with all the things you've done and what you're involved in, and uh, what what are you up to these days? How's your career going? Uh, thank you for asking. I mean, I feel like I wear so many hats. I mean, I obviously work for Extra six out of seven days a week. Um, you can catch that wherever, you know, you check your local listings, but we're, we're nationwide. So I do that where I'm covering entertainment news, which was always fun. And that's always changing and exciting. And then I have my podcast, Higher Learning, where we cover, you know, black culture and how it intersects with politics and current affairs and sports and entertainment. So there's so much there. And I, and I love it so much because I feel like 
a lot of the audience has come over from Bachelor Nation, as they call it, but it started in 2020. So it's like really been great for so many people. We have such a diverse audience and we learn and grow with each other. So that's been fun. Now, my guilty pleasure is Bravo TV. I love all things housewives. So I recently have a podcast called Morally Corrupt, which is named after a famous Bravo moment where we cover things from Real Housewives to Summer House to whatever it is you watch on Bravo TV. And then I also write a weekly blog called Honestly Rach, where I just cover certain issues that are important to me between love, life, career, and everything in between. And then I had a book come out this year. Did I forget something? <laughs> I don't know. I can't keep track. I mean, if you can't keep track of your own stuff, I don't know who can. Rachel. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> well, I got to admit, I, I'm not a big Bravo watcher, you know, but maybe for you, I'll, I'll, I'll tune in a little bit and see what I find. You won't regret it. You won't regret it. <laughs> uh, maybe, or maybe I really will regret it. One of the two. But now you've been involved with extra yard for teachers for a while. Now you were one of the first spokespeople for their national effort to support teachers. So important. Uh, other than the obvious, what was the motivation to want to be involved and stay involved? Absolutely. I think a lot of people don't realize that or don't know that I was a substitute teacher before I, between college and going to law school. And it was an experience that completely changed my life. I actually thought about not going to law school and just becoming a teacher. And then um, I eventually went ahead with law school, but it's something that I always said I wanted to be connected to. So I was mentoring kids. I was helping them prepare their essays for college. I was doing this through a program at church. Um, and then, excuse my dog in the background. And then I, um, I said, how can I be connected now that I have this platform? And so I am from Dallas. I was lucky enough to where I was connected with um, Britton Banowski, who is the executive director of um, College Football Playoff Foundation. And from there, this has just been a partnership that's now going on five years. My mom's a teacher, aunts and uncles were teachers and coaches. So education is something that's really near and dear to me. And I just want to bring awareness to help teachers in the teaching profession, however I can do that. Yeah, that's that's awesome. You know, some of the statistics are staggering. I don't, I don't think enough people pay attention. The biggest problem we have in, in America is finding good teachers and keeping them oh in the education workforce. Uh, like you said, I, I, uh, you mentioned Britain. Uh, I know you talk to him often. What are some of the main issues and efforts that they are taking on to combat that? Um, retention is like a huge issue right now in the teaching profession. I mean, they're big on recruitment, reti uh, retention, professional development, but retention is huge. I mean, since COVID, we're really seeing this huge exit from teachers because they feel underpaid. They don't feel like they're getting that support. We've always talked about how they didn't feel like they could um, supply their classrooms already. They were already in need for that. And then with COVID and the difficulties with that, with distance learning, you're just seeing such an increase in hardship. And so people are leaving. So one of the things that the foundation is among many things is always trying to pinpoint what that issue is specifically nationwide, but also in the city where the bowl game or the championship game will be. So this year it's in Los Angeles where I live now. I will not call that my home city because I am a Texan all the way through, but um, right now they're focusing in uh, Los Angeles and specifically in Inglewood and identifying the needs there. One of the things we're proud of is bowl season's commitment to being involved with the extra uh, yard for teachers in the big day, which was Tuesday. Um, 
I think most people assumed, and rightfully so, when the extra yard for teachers started, it was uh, almost exclusively a college football playoff initiative involving those very you know small handful of bowl games that are involved in the CFP. But uh, last year, uh, and actually this year as well, this is the second consecutive year that every bowl, uh, all 42 of them participate in the big day, surprising teachers in the bowl games in, in, in those communities. Uh, what are your impressions of the big day and the impact it makes around the country? I mean, the fact that it's it's affecting so many teachers nationwide, and I think it's huge. And I love that there's this correlation between sports and education because we're dealing with student athletes. And so a lot of times you forget to highlight the student part of the athlete. And student is actually what's mentioned first. So what I love so much is that's what the foundation is doing. That's what the big day is all about. And it's really about getting, you know, teachers involved, but also the student athletes and coaches and schools. And I just love that this, it's such a perfect fit. And I think that's why another reason I wanted to be involved so much, because it just, there's just so much uh, synergy between the two. And it was a no brainer that the foundation's mission should be what it is. And so days like the big uh uh oh my gosh big game day big bowl day big what's the correct name the big day it's just the big, big day. day yeah the big day that's why things like that are so influential and so important yep no no doubt about it i mean they, you're right they're student athletes they're they're learning in the classroom they're also playing a sport and they're you know most great coaches like to say that they're teachers first you know yeah. so you're you're spot on the connection is just a natural now uh, you mentioned being a Texas fan. Uh, I'm assuming you've been to bowl games that Texas has participated in the in the past. Any memories oh, of those? Have I, Nick? I was at the national championship game in 2006 of January, my first time coming to Los Angeles. I was there in Pasadena. I was there when we won that game against USC. I will never forget it. I have never cried at a sporting event until that moment. Because if you go back to that time, if you were a Texas fan, you thought the game was over. You thought we were losing. But then Vince Young, you know, carried the team and led us to victory. And it was such a moment I'll never forget. And then we got lost afterwards and had to ride home with a player's parent. It was like a whole ordeal. <laughs> but that moment was incredible. I mean, I went to Texas. My parents went to Texas. My sister went to Texas, aunts and uncles. So we definitely bleed burnt orange. So to be there, not just to watch the moment on television, but to be there, feel the energy, feel the moment, I'll never forget. It's, the, it's like my greatest sports moment in life. That is very cool. Yeah. I, well, I, there's no doubt Texas will get back to that level sometime soon, assuming they don't make the playoff this year. I think they're, they're, you know, they still got a little more building to go and they were, they'll, they'll go to, they'll go to another great bowl game and have a great experience there. If you could pick one game for them to go to, and you're going to attend what, what jumps into your mind. And I can't pick the championship game. Well, I mean, <laughs> second runner up to the championship game would be. Oh, I mean, selfishly, I live in LA. So a game, whatever's played at the Rose Bowl. Yep. Yep. That would, that, that's, that's, what always, that's, that's always a good pick. The Rose Bowl is a very popular uh, destination <laughs> for teams, as you would imagine. Well, <laughs> well, Rachel, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. I, I, I know you have a million things going on. You couldn't even remember them all, but uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, appreciate you being here. Look forward to seeing you uh, on the road sometime this year. Absolutely. We'll definitely see each other. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We're going to take a short break and be right back with New England Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick. Stay with us. 
The forecast for this tax season? It's going to rain refunds. Lots of refunds. File for less and get more with Tax Act, the official tax filing software of bowl season. Go to taxact.com to get started today. We now welcome to the show an eight-time Super Bowl champion coach, two times as a defensive coordinator, six times as a head coach, a future Hall of Famer, my former boss, and someone I feel very fortunate to call a friend, New England Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick. Coach, thanks for joining us today. It's always a busy time for you, but especially during game week. So I really appreciate you taking some time to join us today on the Bowl Season Stories podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Nick. Uh, always good to, to be with you and, uh, and to be on with you today. So, um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity. And I also want to assure you that despite me hosting a podcast, I have not become a member of the media without you knowing about it. I've heard you can be a tough interview. I, I don't, I, that's not coming from me. I've heard that, but I'm just a guy that used to work for you asking you questions. That's all this is. Yeah, I'm good with that. All right. Great. Great. Coach, uh, before we jump into talking about bowl games, it's well known that your father spent over 30 years as an assistant coach at Navy and you have a special place in your heart for that program. In fact, I think you were about four years old when your dad first started coaching there in 1956. So I'd like to start by asking you about your love for Navy football and the impact growing up around that program had on developing your passion for the game. Yeah, it had a lot. You know, uh, my dad, uh, as you said, was there for 30 years. But when he retired in 1986, he never really stopped going to work every day and going to the, the football offices and, and being part of the Navy community for the next 20 years. So it was really a a half a century there. It was really 50 years. And um, it was a very, obviously very important part of my life and my family's life as an only child. So my mom, my dad, and and I, and um, my dad was uh, always scouted the team that Navy was going to play the following week. So he was never at any of the Navy games except for the final game, the Army-Navy game uh, or, or bowl game. Um, and so I watched all those games with my mother or listened to them on the radio if Navy played away or went to the the home games in, in Annapolis if um, if they were playing at home. So, yeah, I grew up very attached to the program and very fortunate to be around a lot of the great people in those years through the programs, especially uh, the coaches and um, and the players. So Coach Harden and his staff and um, you know, the, some of the great teams that, that uh, Coach Erlads, Coach Harden, you know, had in the late 50s and 60s. And then, um, you know, as as the years went along and I got older, then being able to uh, work with some of them at like football camps, go to practice, be sort of like, you know, ball boy kind of thing in the uh, training camp periods and so forth. So um, I got to see leadership, um, toughness, um, teamwork at, at a very, very high level. Um, regardless of how good the teams were or weren't, that was the type of player and character that they had on those teams. And that, that was very uh, impactful for me. And uh, honestly, that's kind of the way I've always tried to coach with that type of a, that type of a team uh, mentality in mind. Even though you grew up almost strictly around the college game, your entire career has been in the pro game. Did you ever think about coaching at the college level or were you an NFL guy from the moment you started as a, and as assistant with the uh, Baltimore Colts? No, I was, I was in the, I was in college football, but not for very long. Um, when I graduated from college, I reached out to about 125 different uh, division one and one double a schools to try to um, 
uh, acquire a, a graduate assistant position. And um, uh, I only heard back from about five or six of them, but uh, the um, NC State uh, actually accepted me into the program. And so uh, Coach Holtz called me um, in early uh, early June of 75 saying that he had there were three openings and he was going to uh, give me I was going to have one of them. And so I was pretty excited to go down to NC State and be part of the the graduate assistant program down there and, you know, get a master's in economics and so forth. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, at the end of June, he called me and said, I got some bad news. Um, Title IX has passed and, and um, all the graduate assistant positions that we have from last year are all going to uh, females. And so I don't have anything. So. Coach Holtz was the first coach to hire me. Coach Holtz was the first coach to fire me. And, uh, and so I went from there to um, uh, talk to Coach Marcia Broda, who was the coach of the Baltimore Colts, and asked him if I could uh, work there, thinking that in, at the end of the year in January, uh, after I got some experience as a, in a football program as a coach, that I would be able to apply to a college uh, and get a graduate assistant position. But it just didn't work out that way. And after Baltimore, I went to Detroit and so forth. And so that that kind of never materialized. But that's where I was headed. Uh, it just didn't it just didn't work out. And, and it was really, um, you know, it was the Title IX uh, that that knocked me out of that, which it, it worked out all right. It certainly did. What my biggest takeaway from that story, Coach, is that if you reached out to 125 schools and only five got back to you, that's 120 that might have missed something. I'm guessing. I I don't know if there's any regret on their part, but uh, that that's uh, kind of interesting. Do you think you would coach any differently if you were a head coach in college versus the NFL? Oh, I'm sure it would be a lot different. Yeah, I'm sure it would be a lot different. Uh, having coached with a lot of uh, coaches who have been in both uh, have been at both levels, um, so. Uh, people that I've, I've worked closely with, Coach Saban, Coach Ferentz, Pat Hill, uh, when he was at Fresno, um, Coach Shiano, um, people like that, that that I feel like I have a lot of common with, have worked with, that know me. And we talk about things that you, you do at the NFL level that you wouldn't do at college or vice versa and the way it's set up. And um, it, that just, you know, it's just a different uh, dynamic that, you adapt to and, and, uh, and work with. And, and as the rules have changed in, in both college and professional uh, football, we've all had to adapt to those. So, uh, but yeah, it, it's interesting to talk to, to those coaches about the programs that they run and what, um, you know, what's, what's different, what's the same and, and, and how they try to maximize their opportunities um, in college that we have more time, they have more players, they have more practice plays. So for example, a school like Alabama, uh, they're in the NFL. You have your defense has to has to show plays for your offense, and your offense has to show plays for your defense. So really, you have a full practice, but it's only half a practice for one side of the ball or the other. In college football, with the numbers that you have, um, you could run you know over twice as many plays. Really, it's about three times as many plays um, in practice that then uh, you could run in the NFL. So. Colleges get a lot of their coaching and teaching on the field. Um, in the NFL, there's more in meetings and, and walkthroughs. So that would be a big difference right there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Let's talk about bowl games a little bit. In your dad's, uh, all your dad's years at Navy, he was a part of six bowl games. And I know you were able to maybe attend some when you were growing up, uh, watched others on TV. Uh, they went to a couple of Cotton Bowls versus Rice in Texas, an Orange Bowl versus Missouri in 1961, a Holiday Bowl win over BYU in 78, a Liberty Bowl. What do you recall about those games, either being there in person or watching them on TV? Well, the only game I was there for in person, uh, Nick, was the, was the Orange Bowl in 1960. Um, I was too young for the first cotton bowl, but that was a, that was a big game. The, um, Rice had two NFL quarterbacks, uh, two that played two quarterbacks played in the NFL. And so they were very good. My dad was coaching defensive backs at, at that time. Of course, players went both ways. So, um, but I know that was a big challenge for him and that, and that was a big win for him. And then of course the cotton bowl in 63, um, you know, was a was a tough loss to Texas between Navy at number two and Texas at number one. Uh, so that was really for the national championship game. But uh, I was at the Orange Bowl in 60, uh, you know, with Joe Bellino's Heisman Trophy year. And, and Joe had a, a pretty good game against Missouri. But, you know, I was kind of sat in the stands and cried as as Navy, uh, you know, lost to Missouri. I think it was 21-14. And, and then the other games uh, were all I was involved in the NFL, uh, you know, with a team in the NFL. And so I wasn't able to attend. But, um, you know, I watched as many Navy games really as I as I can, especially the Army Navy game and the bowl games. And, and you know, the other ones in between, you know, Notre Dame, and you know, get games like that. They're pretty well, um, uh, you know, get a lot of coverage. But um, but, yeah, it, it was interesting because, as you know, in the college bowl season, um, teams play you know, through, let's call it mid to late November. Now the army Navy game goes longer than that, but generally speaking, those teams play through the mid November and then essentially take a month off uh, and then play, you know, somewhere around, you know, the very end of December, early part of January. And, and that's a long time for a team to not play. Um, and it, it is what it is. Um, but <clears throat> I think it's hard for a team that uh, has, has played a full, whatever 10, 11, 12 game schedule to then take a month off and then play for um, play those kind of big games. I think a lot of times you didn't see the best football in those bowl games. Uh, the way the playoff uh, format is, is structured now, it's, there's a little bit more of a, you know, weekly playoff uh, format. Um, and, and so I think that probably helps the overall quality of the game a little bit, but uh, I know for a football team to miss, um, call it a month of, of actually playing football. That's probably not the best way to, you know, to have your top performance, um, in, in that game. So I think it's probably good the way that the formatting has, has gone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, for some people, bowl games are kind of as much of a tradition over, uh, the holidays, you know, as the holidays themselves, you know, besides the games Navy played in, do you have any memories of watching bowl games, turning the TV on between Christmas and New Year's and seeing these strange matchups in these strange uh, locations? Well, of course, when I was a kid, there was really there were really only four games, um, you know, the Rose Bowl, Cotton Bowl, Sugar Bowl and and uh, the Orange Bowl. And then a couple other ones uh, kind of filtered in there a little bit, uh, the Gator Bowl. And, and but there was really the four playoff or the four um, January 1st games. And so. Uh, almost every year uh, that I can remember, my my mom's family, her parents, and and all of her brothers and sisters were in Florida. So we would make a two day drive from Maryland down to Florida, like around maybe like call it the twentieth or so of December, and then come back on that weekend because um, 
they didn't work on on New Year's Day, and depending on what day it fell, there was another day around there. But generally speaking, we were always on the road on New Year's Day, but um, we still pulled off. So get up early, you know, drive at like, you know, four in the morning and then and then watch football and then, you know, do the rest of the drive the next day or, or the day before. So um, it was always a big football day, but it's usually on the road. It's usually at a, at a motel. So, um, yeah, that's what I kind of remember about those. But, um, yeah, the matchups were always because there were so few teams, the matchups were always you know, monumental. And, and now with so many bowl games, which gives so many colleges and so many kids more of an opportunity to uh, participate in those. And, and I remember when I went to Stevens game, my son Stevens game at Rutgers uh, in the pinstripe bowl, uh, that that was really quite an experience to sit in the stands and, and watch the, and watch the, the uh, game in Yankee stadium. And um, that was, yeah, that was a very interesting and, and fun experience. So I think it's great for the kids and the programs. And, and I'll say this around here, I can't even tell you how many of our players have backpacks or, or things like that, uh, that they carry around that have, uh, you know, the insignia from the bowl game that they played in. So those games really, um, you know, carry a lot of weight with them. And, and I know they're great memories for the, for the people that participate in them. Yeah. Well, the number of bowl games, as, as you noted, has grown over the years from four to there's 42 now. And, uh, there's one played right in Navy stadium, the military bowl. They have a great matchup every year, pinstripe bowl, as you named and really great experiences for these student athletes. Uh, I know, it, I know bowl season comes at a really busy time of year for you, but do you still try to watch some games? Uh, they're on pretty much every day for, for two weeks. And are there any favorites that you have? Yeah. You know, it's, it's tough, really. I, I don't see much college football during the fall, but then once our season's over, I see a ton of college football, uh, in evaluating players for the college draft. So, uh, my time to, to see that is, uh, is after the season again, occasionally I'll try to catch a Navy game or, you know, when we, when we travel on Saturday, you, you might have time to, you know, catch a part of a night game or an afternoon game or something like that. But we always have meetings and things like that going on. So it, it's rare that I would sit down and watch a and watch a game during the season. But it would be rare in the when the season's over for me not to watch several games per day um, of the you know the of the players that were were scouting in the draft. So and and you like to see those games because it's usually a different matchup. You can see them playing their conference teams or or that type of schedule. And then in the, in the um, bowl games, you get the matchups against teams that they haven't played against. Obviously the other team has good players on their team as well. And so it's, it's usually interesting to watch those games uh, and, and see how the, you know, the, the athletes compete against each other in that situation. Last question for you, coach. And I, I'm going to um, maybe a little bit of a tougher question, but I'm, I'm interested in getting your perspective on this. The mindset of athletes seems to be changing quite a bit. And in college football, we're seeing players opt out of bowl games more frequently than before in order to avoid injury as they pre prepare for the draft, et cetera. You're known for your thorough evaluation of players in your own draft preparation, not only their athletic ability and performance on the field, but also their character and mental makeup. What factor, if any, does a player opting out of a bowl game play in your evaluation of him and his ability to be a good fit for your organization? Yeah, that, you know, that, that's a really good question, a tough question, Nick. I think um, kind of for me, the first one that I, I really remember on this one was Christian McCaffrey uh, when he uh, opted out at, at Stanford. And, and you know Christian as, as such a tough competitive athlete and, you know, a team player and all that. And it seemed like kind of a little bit of an odd, odd move at the time. Now, of course, it's become, you know, very commonplace. Um, 
especially in the bowl games that aren't part of the championship series. Um, so I think most of the athletes in the championship series, most of those play in the bowl games, if not all of them. So it's, it's a little bit different there, but I, I think after I got through the initial adjustment to it, that it's just, you know, an athlete you, you see, you know, I remember the kid at Michigan um, tearing up his knee and, um, you know, some injuries that happened in those games that really affected the players careers. Uh, so there's two sides to that. And, and I think that, um, you know, I respect whatever decision, you know, any individual athlete or team makes or has to make. And, um, you know, just try to take it into consideration and, and depending on what the circumstances were and all that, then evaluate what, what the decision was. But I do think it's become a little bit of a, um, a challenging situation for a player, for an athlete, for his agent, for his family about what he's accomplished and what's in front of them. And then what the upside is to um, another, another bowl game, as I said, in some cases where the athlete hasn't played in, you know, three or four weeks and, and what kind of condition football condition is he really in to play that game. So I don't think that really gets left up to, you know, each of the individual athletes. I try not to be too judgmental on that. I, I can see both sides of it now a lot better than I did when it, when it first happened, probably 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, coach, uh, we first met over 20 years ago when you hired me back in 2001, we've been able to stay in touch over the years since then. And you've always been a great friend and a mentor to me in may in ways you may not even realize. So I want to thank you personally for that and for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate it and good luck this season. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. It was a pleasure to be with you and, uh, you know, I have a ton of respect for what you did for me and, and, uh, and your involvement in other endeavors along the way and, and now in the college bowl series. So um, thanks for all you've done for me. Thanks for what you do for the game, for the college game and um, look forward to catching up with you down the road. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Great. Thanks coach. You We're going to take Nick. a short break and we'll be right back with our next guest. Stay tuned. And our final guest is brought to you by tap it. Understand how going cashless builds loyalty, engages fans and boosts your bottom line. We now welcome to the show the CEO of Florida Citrus Sports, Steve Hogan. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick. Steve, tell our audience a little bit about Florida Citrus Sports. Now, we know you operate the Citrus Bowl and the Cheez-It Bowl, but you do so much more than that. For people that don't know, what is Florida Citrus Sports all about? Yeah, you know, Florida Citrus Sports is a not-for-profit, which uh, my board would tell you is a tax status, not a business philosophy. We're, we're just uh, what we do with our resources mandates that we're an economic organization here in our community. So we're, we're driven by impact. We want to put heads in beds, turn on TV sets around the world. Uh, at the end of the day, we want to use those resources and our platform to impact our community immediately, especially around the stadium in a socio impact way. When you look at affordable housing, early education, all those kinds of things. So anyway, we're, we're an impact company is the way I describe it, economic and socioeconomic. And that's, that's what we're paid to do. Well, we're going to get back to the bowl games and Florida Citrus Sports and again, again in a minute. But I want to talk about you for a second. You've been with Florida Citrus Sports for over 25 years. I think you and I have known each other most of that time. You worked your way up from the events department. Eventually, you were named CEO in 2006. What has the journey been like for you as your career grew and as the organization grew kind of, kind of simultaneously? Yeah, you know, it's been exciting, scary, and then exciting. You know, it's like anybody in sports. I mean, I think it. You know, you, you have ambitions to, to be in an impactful position. You want to grow your career. 
Um, you know this better than anybody and, and in the industry, young kids, you get in and you're faced with choices all the time. Do I need to leave to go up a step, come check back in at a later point in my career? And I've just been blessed that through my years here, there, there's always been a new challenge. You know, the organization, the board, my previous two CEOs that I worked for, ultimately I was the COO for Chuck Rowe, uh, who had been here for 20 years himself. Gave way to, to Tom Mickle, who is an amazing CEO, came from the ACC Atlantic Coast Conference in Duke. I was his COO. Um, so in each of those steps, they gave me new challenges. It kept me interested, showed me that they still had a, a plan of progression for me. And uh, so, I, you know, it's been exciting all the way through stadium renovations, the addition of the second bowl game. We've done college all-star games, NFL Pro Bowls, international soccer matches. And I think that's been the best part is the challenges by all of those executives and our community leadership to say, we can do more, we can be more, we can be more impactful. And it's made it really hard to say, I'm going to go take some other opportunity somewhere else. And I'm, I'm so lucky that that was the calculus that I made. <laughs> well, we talked about you hosting two bowl games. Is having two bowl games in the same stadium an advantage or is it more of a challenge for you and your staff than a one game event during bowl season? Yeah, no, clearly a challenge, um, but an exciting one. And it really is a resource management, staff management, volunteer management challenge. But once you started to perfect it, right, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say routine, but it feels natural to us now. We have four teams in town all at one time, hospitality events, practice sites, police escorts, you name it, going on literally at the same time. The games are played a few days apart. Um, but the blessing of Orlando, I think, is that really at any given week, there's probably a million and a half people in town that don't live here. Our community is used to having that volume. There might be a 40,000 person convention at the convention center, and you wouldn't know, right, that Clemson, uh, Iowa, you know, and, and Kentucky and Iowa State were here. They didn't see each other unless we forced them together. You got Disney, Universal, SeaWorld, on and on and on. So we're blessed, but I would say it was a resource and staff challenge in the early days, but became really exciting, and our community has really gravitated to it. And the relationship with four Power Five conferences that are usually teams that are ranked in the top 25 has made it a really cool, fun week at least for Orlando to participate in college football's postseason in that way in bowl season. Well, I know teams across the country want to play in bowl games in Orlando. So uh, for well, you were a part of making that happen. So, uh, but uh, for you and our big East relationship, right? I mean, you were I there. Was proud the of that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Now you're a past chairman of, of bowl seasons executive committee. It was known as the football bowl association at the time. You know how important it is for the bowls to, to support one another. You know, we're kind of a big family, uh, you, you guys don't really compete with one another. You, you, you all do the same thing, but it's in different communities, different markets, all with the same mission of promoting the game of college football. Uh, you guys served as our host for our annual meeting last year. I, I want to say publicly how appreciative I am of the effort of you and your staff. We had, uh, you know, for those listening, we had over 400, 500 people who work at bowl, work for bowl games, do business with bowl games. It was the you know, the, the only time of year that we all come together in one place. What impact do you see being made uh, on the entire bowl system with the collective effort we put together with bowl season? Yeah, so proud. You know, I think people would be proud if they got to know those staffs, the communities, their volunteers in those communities, the philanthropic commitments made in each of those communities, even though sometimes unique, nonetheless, a heavy lift, very impactful in their own right. But the, the sheer focus collectively, the collegiality of the bowl organizations, the bowl leadership, us as members, you're right, we don't compete day to day work. It's very pretty much regimented. We all we're trying to do the best job we can do for student athletes, 
coaches, administrators, and their families, it, it's not lost on us that what 10, 11, 12,000 kids are playing this sport uh, at the highest level. And maybe a hundred of them are going to stick and get paid to do this. Right. And that's important, right? We cheer that. We want to see that, but we all are focused intentionally on, on those 10,000 kids. What portion of them are ultimately going to play in a postseason experience? Their last, maybe the only time they played in their career, right? What's the future look like? What's their experience that they'll look back 20 years from now and say, it was meaningful that I went to a world war II museum or I, I learned about how they're investing in at-risk neighborhoods in Orlando, right? So I, I think most of the country would be amazingly proud with your leadership, our board, our executive committee at that level, really all of college athletics. And the bowls just are, are an important part of that fabric bowl season. And their focus on, on the kids and the fans and the families that matter. That to me is what I don't think ever gets out there. But if you've been a player and you've been a family member and you have attended you know that to be true, and you would tell that story the rest of your life, and I think that's that's something that we're all uh, very very proud of. Yeah, I think I think you do speak on behalf of all of us when you say that, and you know one of, that's one of our goals in bowl season stories. We've had a lot of great guests who've participated in bowl games, and it usually it hits us as we get older, Steve. Which you and I are are, are getting older for sure. As you get older, uh, uh, people who've played in bowl games 10, 20 years down the road, as we talk to them on this podcast, they look back and they go, "Wow, I'd, I'd do anything to play in one more game." You know that was. That was my last opportunity to play with my friends, kind of like being on vacation with, uh, you know, you could, you can go on vacation whenever you want, but when can you do it with, uh, you know, hundred of your closest friends? Uh, so much, so many great memories for those guys. Yeah. And you know, look at nine or 10,000 kids again, and their extended fan. Think about their families that are actually going to these and enjoying that week with them. Um, I, I, you just, it'd be a shame. And I'm so proud. And I think that you know, we're both alluding to is how serious people take that job right? It, it's bowls do a lot of things. We have things to sell. We have sponsors to sell and that makes it fun and wacky in and of itself. Right. And they're an important part of the financial fabric of the postseason. But if you talk to the people, they take it as job number one, that you are creating that memory, that experience, you're fully invested in the kid, the student athlete, the coaches and their families. And, and that's something to be proud of. And, and, and I think you can look back and that's what the, the rest of it makes bowl season fun for all of us. And the, the events and the, you know, dumping mayonnaise and cheese it boxes on everybody. But it, in the end, it's it, if, if the fans knew how much time the, the volunteers in those communities put into that week that they're never going to forget, they'd be amazingly proud of what bowl season is. One of the things I'm really proud of is the philanthropic efforts uh, and the investment in the community that that you you know, with Florida Citrus Sports are probably at the top of that list, but every bowl does it to some extent. You alluded to this uh, a minute ago. Florida Citrus Sports was heavily involved with the creation of Lift Orlando, a 501c3 organization aimed at breaking the cycle of poverty in Orlando's at-risk communities. It's been around for almost a decade. Tell us more about that. Tell us about the impact the effort has had on your community. Yeah, you know, it's I'm most proud of Lift Orlando, of anything I've ever done in my athletic, if you call it career. I'm not an athlete in any respect, but my involvement around athletes through Florida Citrus Sports, I'm more proud of Lift and Lift Orlando. And I hope people go look it up. But it, the idea, you know, Camping World Stadium, the original Citrus Bowl, 70 plus years old at the time, you know, was in desperate need of investment to keep up. Um, and we ultimately achieved that. So quarter of a million dollars for starters, ripped down the old building, rebuild it. But it's in the poorest zip code in Central Florida. Like many stadiums, pro, collegiate, in some cases around the country, are in the you know, cheapest real estate. 
Uh, and for the most part, you saw little or no investment in the poorest zip code in Central Florida, really weren't many of our great African-American leaders settled in the 40s and 50s here, built homes, a lot of educators, a lot of famous legislators, admirals, they're here, right? So the history, but there was no investment in this community for probably 50 years for the most part. And so thus, you know, you, you see the outcomes of that, the results of that, and the stadium was going to get this quarter million dollar investment. And, you know, you're proud of that, but we stepped back for a second and said, we've always been an impact company. We've always been invested in children and education since 1947. This is maybe an opportunity where you hear all the time, build this new facility here and it will trickle down and everybody will benefit from it. We, knew, we know that that's not true. We had a chance to say, what if it was? What if a sports facility could connect on a vascular level with the residents that live in its shadow? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be the legacy to say, somehow instead of a kid walking around a football stadium to get to high school or elementary school could say, man, that's a beating heart in my community of resource and opportunity. They're, they're going to think about that later in life, but as kids, we wanted that to be true. So here we were, we set course and said, we're going to do that. And it took a year to do in-home surveys and talk to mom and grandma, 1400 of those surveys. And the four things that they said they would do if they could wave a magic wand were, I need a safe, affordable place to live. I got to have the best education money can buy. I got to have access to better jobs and job growth. And I need places to go be healthy. I need to see a proper doctor. I need to be outside and play and be active. Those are the four things, right? So we said, hey, we're going to join you in that battle. Here we are 10 years later now, $100 million. And we've built a brand new outdoor state-of-the-art Lake Lorna Dune Park. Got an NFL Play 60 field. You got a Bay Hill planning course, yada, yada, yada. We got two affordable housing communities two blocks literally from the stadium, the best early education uh, school that you could buy run by Primrose and Advent Health here in the community, a $10 million boys and girls club in a couple months, we'll open a 30,000 square foot health and wellness building. So I'll, I'll close with this thought and I thank you and I know it's long, but you appreciate this, I appreciate this, but the idea is if you could take those structural assets in the poorest zip code in central Florida and say, without regard to money, you as a kid now without taking four bus transfers to do it, can achieve all in your own right and just as much as the wealthiest community that you compete against here in Central Florida. And you're seeing that now. They can walk to the best education. They can walk to those jobs. They've got a safe, affordable place to live on and on and on. So I will close, Nick, on this issue with this. I know we'll probably be short on time, but I tell you, ask Coach Saban, ask Coach Harbaugh, ask Dabo Swinney from this most recent year, ask all of them what, what their kids felt when they spent time after knowing this about the stadium and knowing what's happening a few blocks away and then meeting those kids here for a day with the kids with all four teams I can tell you in all my years here the last 10 years I've had no less than a dozen kids from each team walk up to me and go I grew up in that neighborhood I grew up in a neighborhood just like that the fact that I'm playing in this game and in some small way making that contribution to changing that dynamic has been the most powerful thing to them. And, and so I couldn't be more proud of that fact. I think Nick more than anything is that message is getting out through these players and they feel enriched by bringing their talent in some small way to a postseason game and changing that for a kid that they identify with. So thank you for the <laughs> indulgence. That's no, Steve, that is awesome. I, I we can hear the passion in your voice. I, I can't blame you. I hope, I hope this is the most listened to segment of all the podcasts we've done because people need to hear 
what you just said, you know, people turn on the TV and they watch a, a bowl game for three hours in December, which in and of its own right is, is, is great. But what you're doing specifically in Orlando and what the bowl system as a whole across 42 communities across the country is really uh, a massive effort of good. And people need to know more about that story. Yeah. So thank, thank you. Thanks so much for sharing it. And uh, I know you're busy. Uh, obviously, you've got a lot going on. Thanks for joining us, Steve. And thanks for all you do for, for the game of college football. We really appreciate it. Uh, you too, Nick. Appreciate everything. Have a great week. And thank all of you for listening to this week's Bowl Season Stories podcast. Please join us next week when we will welcome another lineup of great guests. If you like the show, we'd appreciate you dropping a five-star rating for the podcast. And as always, you can follow all the podcast and bowl season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at bowl season. Thanks for listening. Ah!